All right, we are back in action. I am so excited. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a very special edition of the County 10 podcast, as well as an edition of the Radcast Outdoors podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Hello. It's good, good to, to be see here. You guys. I know. We're back together again. I like it. Also, we have the Muley Fanatic Foundation, 10 Country Chapter, Blake Fagler and Rowdy Anderson. Guys, how you doing? How's it going? How's it going? Good. All right, and then our very special guest, ladies and gentlemen. If you don't know who he is, he's a man of many hats, literally, uh, and you might see him in a hat most of the time, but he's a writer, uh, an outfitter, producer, father, husband, Jim Shockey. Wow, I got, I'm going to have to live up to that now. <laughs> yes, you are, sir. And skilled in all different aspects of hunting, and we'll talk about that. But, uh, Jim, it's so good to have you here in Wyoming. I'm I'm thrilled to be back. I mean, I, I was telling everybody earlier, I started hunting here 40 years ago, and I haven't probably been hunting here for 20 years. So it's, it's nice to be back in Wyoming. One place I'd move to if I was going to move from Canada somewhere else. Awesome. I love to hear that. Is there any way, anywhere we can get you hunting to get you back here or uh, something we need to work on? Yeah. You know, my bucket list is, I've pretty well done it all. So nowadays I have other, other things I'm focusing on. I still hunt. But, but I don't travel and hunt anymore, not not very far, to the Yukon, and that's, that's about as far as I go. Well, your travels are vast, and as a matter of fact, you have a new book that you can pre-order right now, uh, Call Me Hunter, and it's coming out October 2023, right? Correct, yeah. You can pre-order it now, I think, on any any Amazon or whoever sells books. Although it's fiction, it's basically your life, right? Well, I, what I say is there's, it's about 80% fact and then about 20% fiction and that 20% is the the part that would put me in jail so that's the <laughs> fiction part <clears throat> excuse me but it, it's it's based yeah pretty close to my life uh but but in a thriller format just made it a little bit more exciting to read than you know I was born blah blah and lived here blah blah so it's it's fun to read can i admit something to you yeah I knew more about your daughter than I knew about you uh, quite a few years ago. Um, but being a female in the fishing and trying to get into the hunting world, Eva was just, you know, kind of a household name as far as like, here's somebody you need to watch if you're interested. In did, did you, you didn't get the memo that we are not talking about Eva here. Is that <laughs> like who? who <coughs> this is your do podcast. You, I know. I know. You know but how I'm many like, times uh, I've been anywhere and they say, you know what I want to talk about? Yes, I, know, I know. Not me. Know. Either my father and father-in-law, Hal and Lynn. Or Eva. So mm -hmm. Eva is I'm off sorry, topic. But I just had to admit that. I had to just come clean right away. But we're so glad to be here. Uh, we'll start. We're going to have a fun roundtable, guys. I'm really excited. Muley Fanatic Foundation, Radcast Outdoors Podcast, as well with the legendary Jim Shockey. So let's get this thing started. Well, first question off the bat is Hand of Man Museum. Where did it come from? Why did you start it? And what's going on with it? Yeah, you know, the Hand of Man Museum is a museum that we... Uh, Opened the doors in 2019, October, just before COVID hit. Uh, wonderful timing. But uh, it's a museum that I started when I was 10 years old. I had the vision for it and literally kept on that pathway for another 55 years. Um, you know, so, so I say if you drive in one direction for half a century, you end up somewhere. And the Handyman Museum of natural history, cultural arts, and conservation is where I ended up, 17,000 square feet, and it's packed with every cool thing that a hunter, naturalist, outdoor person, anyone that's interested in cultural arts. Um, you know, I mean, there's 
giant dinosaur skeletons and woolly mammoth skeletons and, and mounts from all over the world. It's actually one of the reasons that I hunted as much as I did around the world because you can't buy those those things, those those um, animals from around the world. Every museum has to send collectors out to get them. And I thought, well, why would I send somebody out? I'm, I'm going to go do it myself. <laughs> You're the collector. Yeah, I'm that, yes. and that's that's what I devoted my life to. So the Hanuman Museum is kind of the the magnus opus of of my life. Um, and, and it's and free. What I was focused on. Yeah, it's it's donation only. That's cr- that's wonderful. Yeah, I, I grew up in a trailer park, and and I could never have afforded to go into a museum if it was a one dollar cover charge, and and you know that stigma that was horrible. So I. I We'll never have a cover charge on that museum. We're actually, my wife and I are donating it to a foundation, the land, the building, the contents, and enough money that all expenses will be paid for 40 years. Wow. So our great-grandchildren will be able to go in and, and not have to pay a cover charge. Now it's donation, and it's, you know, I guess I'm a bit of a Marxist in that way, from those according to their ability to those according to their need. So it's amazing when you put a donation only how people in the community step up to support that that uh, event, that venue, uh, you know, our, our donations are probably higher than what we would get if we charged a admission. So it, it, it's pretty cool, the Hanuman Museum. Anybody can Google it. Uh, it's a lot better than... It's in what, British Columbia, right? Yeah, it's you on see? Vancouver Island, about an nor- uh, hour north of Victoria, which people have heard of Victor- Victoria. They call it Victoria Island, but it's Vancouver Island. Victoria is the capital of British Columbia. Beautiful. Anytime you come there, it's, it's gorgeous. Maybe a little rainy for you guys here with your sunshine everywhere every single day. But, we got the uh, wind though, man. Yeah, we do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we don't get any of that. But uh, it, yeah, it's a it's a fabulous. Uh, you know, you can Google it, see the reviews on it. People love it. It's cool it, to see your legacy too. Just continue on, like you talked about, making sure it's instilled for the forty years. Because really, you've done all this work, and it is your legacy. You walk through there; it's a self guided tour. All these videos. There's videos for almost every single. Uh, aspect of the museum that you can watch that you've done through 50 years. Yeah, yeah, the, you know that's it's state of the art curation and and meaning that instead of a big sign where you have to read and I mean I love museums and I'll I'll read the first maybe the title and I'll get about two lines down and then I'm lost uh, or somebody steps in front of me. So what it is everybody that comes in gets an iPad and we've curated little 2-3 minute vignette videos with real footage of real animals, real, you know, talking about conservation and beside the animal there's just a little number. So if you're interested, you plug that number into the iPad and you'll get a story. The, the kids love it. Can't it it's beat amazing. That. It's easy, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't like reading, so pictures are better. <laughs> Videos even better. Yeah, and it's how the kids, that's how they learn nowadays. I mean, it, when we first opened, because everything is close. I mean, it was as close as us right here. Uh, you can touch anything. And, and we thought, oh, should we have an age limit for kids? Kids don't touch anything. Uh, adults are worse. The kids hang onto the <laughs> iPad, and they're, they're touching the iPad. And that, that's what they, it's amazing. We, we get school classrooms in every week, two or three, and they, all come back on the weekend with their parents. And it, it, it's so cute because the parents come in saying, our kids want to see a museum on the weekend. You know, what, what is this place? And, and then they walk in and go, oh, I, can't, I get it now. I wish we had one in America because I think it brings a lot of people who don't know about hunting into uh, just the culture of the world and how some of uh, the things you have in your museum talk about this is a way of life in areas. And if they did not have hunting, um, the animals wouldn't be there. 
Of course. And that, that, that's the conservation component of the title, you know, Hanuman Museum of Natural History, Cultural Arts, and Conservation. And, and if people come in a little closed-minded, when they leave, they're definitely more open-minded, more tolerant. And that, that's the purpose of not only for the way of life, the outdoor you know, field-to-table lifestyle, but also of the people around the world. They realize we're all the same. You know, we, we want the same things for our children, the, you know, safety, health, the roof overhead, food, you know, medical, if we can get it. And, and, you know, then you get education beyond that for luxuries. That's what it's meant to be is to open the doors. And I'll, I'll tell you a little quick story about that. In our community, we actually have a green member of parliament for our provincial legislature. So, so green party, I mean, this is as far left as you can get. So when I opened it, you know, I, I was worried, oh boy, you know, we're going to get protested, you know eggs thrown at us and paint and all the, you know, screamed at. But, but in fact, the community has embraced it. This far left green community has embraced this museum as their own. And, and it's pro hunting you know, yep. because it talks about conservation and there's no, you won't see any shoulder mounts in there. Uh, I think there's one bison and you'll see skulls and skeletons and full body mounts. So it's a natural history museum that talks about hunting and it shows that we've been hunting for 10,000, what, what, 7,000, depends on what your, your faith is, uh, you know, and we're not different any nowadays than we were back then. No matter how we might think we're evolved, we're, we're still the same people that we always were and always will be. And we need to spread that message. You know, I said, you know, I wish we had that here in America, too, because it is something that kind of connects that that sometimes can be, be lost with folks who don't know about hunting or maybe even are anti-hunting. You've said many times man is a hunter, and I mean, how we all agree with that. Patrick and I both are avid in getting our kids involved in the outdoors and passing that heritage on to that future generation. So to that point, how, how can we help as a community perpetuate and get youth involved in the outdoors? Well, I mean, just what we were talking about with, with this museum. First of all, you have to get them interested in it. And, and that means you have, to have, you have to provide something that's more interesting than what they're doing right now, which is what? Watching TV and doing video games. I mean, that, that's, and, and uh, you know, you turn your brain off and you get to, you know, ding, 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 and shoot space Martians. That's, that's pretty, you know, desirable and alluring when you're a child. So you've got to make it interesting for them. Take them out on a 20 below zero day when it's windy and, and let's sit on this hill and wait for a mule deer to come show up. You know, that's not as much fun as playing a video game in a nice warm house and, you know, having a soda pop. So, so you have to make it interesting for them. And that, that's where the museum comes in. It, it shows them that, wow, this is different. I never knew that. I never saw this. And this is cool. And you stimulate them beyond what they can be stimulated by shooting space Martians on their, their video game. And, and I think that's, that's, you know, really important nowadays for because especially if you're already hunting you you know the wonder of sitting there in the morning and listening to the coyote starting to howl and the frost and the fresh air and the exercise but that doesn't do it for a kid you know that you got to keep them interested so so you're exactly right uh, is we need to have one of these museums in every community and it can be done you know there's People in this, I mean, I, I saw more private jets flying into Jackson Hole than I, there's people with enough money. And we have a lot of artifacts here, too, you know, with our indigenous tribes. I, I was just know. asking where yeah. the, there's a pawn shop right next door. I can't wait to get in there. It's awesome. Yeah, that's what I'm, I'm excited. I might find something I can take home. And the regalia the is great there. They really do have uh, a lot of that. So, yeah. yeah perfect. So, so, so we could, yeah. You know, and you have the museum, the one fellow Stark. 
Um, mm-hmm. He's yeah. doing that museum, mm-hmm. military museum. We drove by it on the way from Jackson Hole. It's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's fabulous. Uh, you know, there's a fellow that's putting his money into the community for the community's benefit, and that's all the people that have money. I mean, what are you going to do with it? You're going to take it, you know, you, so you got 50 Lamborghinis. You're going to take them with you when you die? No. Put them in a museum. Just donate them to the community. And, and let's let's do what we can to make this a better world. If you have money, do it. And, and there's people in this community could afford to do exactly what we're talking about, a museum that interests younger children, youth, to get into the outdoors, into this outdoor lifestyle. And we all know sitting at this table, it's the best lifestyle that you can possibly live. Yes, it is. Field-to-table living. So I have a follow-up question on that. So I know different big names in fishing and hunting that we've talked to talked about it's sometimes challenging to get your own kids when you're a bigger name in those sports into the thing that you're doing because it's something you do a lot, especially when you have a TV show, you're having to travel, there's a lot of demands on it. So how are you able to successfully get your kids involved in that same outdoor space? Well, you know, I, uh, I, I was always very careful not, not to force them into it. They'll come around to it when they come around. And back to, you know, Eva, yeah, she didn't pick up a, a gun to start hunting until she was 21. She actually had finished university down in Australia and came home and, you know, I mean, walked into the room and said, oh, I'm ready to learn how to hunt now. I mean, my wife, Louise, and I, our mouths dropped and, what? <laughs> and she said, yeah, I'm old enough now that you and I can be friends. And, and uh, you know, let's, let, I want to learn how to hunt. And, and you know, I actually said to her, I said, you haven't talked to me since you're 14 years old, and now you want to suddenly learn how to hunt. <laughs> and and that, that's, she said, yeah. You know, and, and so I, within one hour, I had a, already a trip booked to South Africa with Evie and Louise and we awesome. went there and she she got her first animal a warthog Pumbaa as she called it <laughs> and, and she actually looked at it and said you know I mean she was had tears in her eyes and was overwhelmed and then once she sort of got over that she said boy with the, you know that would make a really nice purse is a from the height of the Pumbaa. that's my girl I love it yeah yeah she's yep yeah so so it, you can't force children into it I I, I see a lot of uh, people in our in our world that try and drag their children into it earlier. I mean, you, you, like I said, shooting space Martians on a video game is kind of fun, and and you can't force them by doing what you love. They'll they'll come around to it. You just set the example, and and uh, even if they don't pick it up at an early age, they will eventually. They'll come back to it, and and also I think we have to remember that historically, what what percentage of of the of our communities were hunters. You know, really, truly, hunters providing for the community ten percent. So not everybody's got that hunting gene. I, I suspect someday they'll they'll identify the marker that says you're a hunter, you're a hunter, you're a hunter, because there's many times it skips generations, mm. and and then the grandson is a or granddaughters is a hunter. She's got the desire to be out in the woods and providing for her family. She, it's a, it's yeah, that's a, me. I was never raised with any hunting or fishing. My grandma raised me. She didn't care to be outdoors at all. And all of a sudden I got like just total polar opposite. But I think I, I feel like I got the hunting genes somewhere down the line. So true. I think that, that that's, and that's true. That's perfectly natural. So not everybody, you know, you can't make everybody want to love what we love. It's, it's just not possible. I, I, sus- I suspect way back when, you know, going back thousands of years that, uh, you know, when they had their cave meetings, there was 10% of the population didn't like the hunters. 
you know, they're envious and jealous, of course. You know, they rear, <laughs> rear, jealousy rearing its ugly green head. But but uh, because we provided, you know, we provided. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a quick side story on that. I'm sorry, I'm going to do this, but <laughs> but there there was a doctor of of psychology psychology who did a study on what women find most attractive in a man, and so they they picked the top person from several industries, including LeBron James from basketball, um, who, who are the, uh, some quarterback, I, I don't know these guys, but they, they were all the hot, you know, stars of the day. And then they picked me as a hunter. And, and she put it out there to thousands of women and said, you know, who do you find most attractive? And I got 72% of the vote. And it's not because of looks and money, for definitely for sure not for money. It was because they said that person looks like they can provide for me and look after me and look after my family. And that's always been what it's, you know, in this world, that's always been, you know, we're lucky. We're fortunate to be born with that gene. And, and, uh, and, and of course, there's always been animosity about that. And, and that's why 10% of us are hunters and 10% aren't. And there's 80% in between that, depending on what's in the popular press on a given day, they'll swing to that side or this side. You're a man's man. That's what I say. You're a man's man. Blake, you got a question? Yeah. So we've talked a lot about how to preserve conservation. And you're obviously a huge name in the conservation world. What are some th- unique ways that you've maybe seen to implement conservation and raise money and put it to work? You know, we have to be careful with with the messaging because education first and entertainment second, you'll lose most of the people. The same thing for our museum. It's always entertainment first. You entertain first, and then education is a byproduct of that. And if we, we come in too hard with the academic messaging, you know, we got to do this to save wildlife. It's going to fall flat on most people, honestly. Those of us that are fanatics, you know, in, in our, in our world, uh, the outdoor world, we get it. And we, you can reach us with that messaging, but the vast majority of the people who we need to be on our side, you have to entertain them first. You have to catch them again. This is my novel. Call me Hunter. You know, it's a pro hunting novel that Simon and Schuster in New York city are publishing. I mean, that's a fairly woke audience over there that yeah. hasn't allowed us to get into their world since Ruark and Hemingway. You know, it's, we've been, it's been closed world to us. And and they embrace this novel. I think they're printing 125,000 copies. You can Google it right now and it'll come up. They've, they're going to town on this because it's entertainment first yeah. and education second. And, and I think that's, that's the key. The answer to your question is we have to entertain first. You, you show them that a, we're confident and we're you're humorous, we're funny, we, you know, we can entertain you in whatever way that is, whether it's on this podcast or whether it's a television show uh, or maybe in writing. Uh, you know, catch them with the entertainment first and then, oh, that's kind of interesting. I'm interested in that character. What's that char- what does he stand for or she stand for? Um, and you know, in my novel, the protagonist is a young lady. I had to write in a female voice. Oh my God. Yes, you yeah. did. Yeah, I sure <laughs> did. And you know, I grew up with two sisters and a mother and a father that wasn't around. So it wasn't that hard and a, a wife and a daughter. So it wasn't that difficult, but uh, the anti-hero is a pro hunter, right? So he's got his flaws, or that guy does. And then the, the um, villain is, is a animal rights guy. So, so, you know, that's entertainment. And so you're getting the messaging across by telling a story. 
And, and then once you hook people with the entertainment, then you can start to talk about conservation. So we have to be very careful not, not to put people to sleep with our conservation message first. Yeah. Entertainment's got to be first. Our, uh, our theme tonight is the good old days, and I was wondering if you've got a great story f- from yourself from the good old days. You know, the, the uh, like I'm 65 now, so the good old days were a long time ago for me. <laughs> and, and to try and remember back to those days, I, I was actually writing what I was going to talk about tonight or just trying to make some notes and, and thinking about that. I mean, there's so many stories from uh, from back in the day when, you know, when I, when I started hunting. I mean, uh, you know, just one that comes to mind was my... my father we grew up in a trailer park as i said and if my dad didn't get his moose every year we ate macaroni all winter and it was it was a pretty exciting thing when he came back from the moose hunt you know the shocky family moose hunt and there was a moose foot sticking out of the back of the truck even better if there was an antler sticking up i I can remember running to the window and looking out you know dad's here dad's here and trying to see the back of the truck are we going to eat meat in the winter I i didn't know you could actually buy a cow until i was in high school we just didn't do it um but my first moose hunt, so so to to get your first moose was was a coming of age. Uh, it was almost a ceremony for for us young guys. And I remember standing on a cut line. I was 16 years old, and and uh, my uncle was tracking the moose. And a cut line is a, is a fire break that they cut in a straight line up in northern Saskatchewan. And Dad said, "Here they're coming." And and I saw these black shapes coming through the the trees. And a cut line's about. 10, 15 feet wide at the most. So when these moose crossed, it was just flash, flash. And you heard one shot, bang. And both dad and I were using 270s. That, you know, he was a Jack O'Connor fan, 270. I mean, oh my goodness. But that's what, you know, so I just used a 270 at 16. That's what you did. We both shot at the first moose. There wasn't time to reload for the second moose that ran across. And, you know, dad looked at me, did you hit him? And I said, I'm pretty sure. And he said, well, I'm pretty sure I hit him too. But there was only one, you know, bang. And, and uh, we walked over and there was cut hair and then there was a spot of blood. And sure, sure enough, there's the dead moose laying about 50 yards off the trail in the bush. But there was only one bullet hole in it. And, and so forever, my dad told the story at family gatherings, you know, so we're just not sure who shot it, whether it was that cagey old veteran and he'd live up, lift up his <laughs> pretend gun and, you know, steady as a rock, or that eager young beginner and he'd wave his gun all over the place. So, so you know, that's, that's what I grew up with is, is uh, meat hunting. That's what we did was meat hunting. And, and that, I think, has changed Quite a bit for the better, actually. Uh, you know, to my dad in those days, the good old days, it was that deer was a hamburger running across a field. That that's all the respect he had for it was its its sustenance, subsistence. There was no there was no higher sensibilities involved, no spirituality. He wasn't getting in touch with his ancestral soul. It was just kill that deer and let's turn it into hamburger. If I can be done on opening morning by noon, I can be back at work, you know, for the afternoon. That's a perfect hunt. So, so I think that the good old days, they were wonderful. But, but I honestly think that you know, to see you young guys now and young ladies, um, there you have a far greater sense of a responsibility towards the animal and a greater sense, a greater understanding of what the the um, the responsibility that you shoulder when you take the life of that animal. So, so I, the good old days were, were wonderful, but I honestly think that, uh, 
you're creating days that are far better than the good old days nowadays. You're leading the way, though, in a lot of that, you know, for us young young bucks over here, <laughs> pun intended, because, you know, we need to have somebody to follow suit that really does talk about the spiritual aspect, talks about the entertainment first. It is crucial for bringing in the folks that I know are the way for hunting to succeed, and those are the anti-hunters, and those are the folks that don't know about it. Uh, Jim, how did you get paired up with the Muley Fanatic Foundation? I have no idea. I'm, <laughs> I, I, I will. Be I will guarantee I am the worst mule deer hunter within a hundred miles of here right now. If there was a mule deer in this room, I doubt I could find it, or, or it would be able to hide from me. I don't know. They, I they don't shape believe shift. that for a second. Well, sir. <laughs> well I, mean, I guess did, we're going to have to have them back here yeah, for a, a mule back. deer hunt, huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've hunted them a lot, and uh, uh, like I don't know if I mentioned Eva, she got a monster last year with her bow and arrow, two hundred and forty-three inches. Is, you know, gross score. Of course, I was outfitter scoring, which I tell her, you know, you can take off about 20% what of that. What is the but... deal with, okay, what's the deal with outfitter scoring? Yeah, that's kind of the same opinion that we have. We just went to a Dubois Outfitters Association dinner the other night, and the scoring seemed a little skewed from my point of view. <laughs> oh, okay. Just giving them a hard okay, time. Okay, okay, Yeah, okay. you know, which is fair enough, right? Because it should never be about inches anyway. That, that yeah. doesn't make a hunter break a hunt. And, that, you know, outfitters want to make sure everybody's happy. So if it's 10, 20% bigger than it actually is, the hunter's happier. The so you're an outfitter? Happier. You've done that oh, before? Oh, yeah. Okay. I've, I've been an outfitter for, well, yeah, that's actually what I am. I've been cool. an outfitter for 30 years. But you've done the 20% increase. Then, oh, I would never saying. do that. That's, <laughs> that's <laughs> other, and, and in my outfit, we don't have to do that. Our, oh, our yeah. moose and our, <laughs> uh, what, what, what? So what you're saying is it's not just anglers that lie about the size of the <laughs> no, fish. It, <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't call it lying. I, 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 I would Stretching. call it, yeah, maybe just a little bit. Uh, uh, and, and you know what? If it makes people happier, who cares? You know, Amen. I mean, if, yeah, that, that's, uh, they should actually make a tape. I should actually come out with that. I, I'm going to patent that right on here. It came on a tape that the inches are only three quarters of an inch. <laughs> It, it would be, every outfitter would use one. It would be awesome. Oh boy, I like that. I like that a lot. Of course, we have Jim Shockey with us who does a, a lot of appearances, um, but for this year, you're not doing a lot in America, right? No, I haven't. I've been off the road for, since 2019, October. Mozambique was my last international trip and I, I, I had to sit down and write that novel, Call Me Hunter. And I started writing it and then COVID hit and 2020, I was supposed to be here in uh, land. Lander, I keep wanting to say Ladner, which is up in British Columbia, but Lander. Uh, And 2020, we canceled 2021. It couldn't go COVID. And then last year, 2022, my wife, Louise, my soulmate, uh, will be 39 years married this year. She had a pretty bad diagnosis on health, so I couldn't come last year. This year, she's doing well enough that I could be here. So so it's... uh, I don't remember your original question. I got sidetracked, but uh, was it how I got here? Uh, no, how many appearances you might be doing? Oh, this you know, year, yeah. You don't, you I, don't do it, you know, like you mentioned, no, not a ton no, anymore, I, I, so it's pretty special for you to be here. Uh, thank you, but but honestly, it's, it, the honor is mine, and, and I felt so bad for not being able to come for the last three years, and I did not want you to have to go to a second-rate guest like Cody Robbins, so... <laughs> Uh, we, we wouldn't. <laughs> Hopefully Cody's listening to that right now. I hope so too. As, we can see. Well, uh, we appreciate uh, your wife lending you us, to, to us as well and making this trip too because you're a far ways from uh, from home right now, but uh, not too far. So that's good. You could be farther in your world. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've, I've definitely gone further than this, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I think Louise was kind of happy to get me out of the house. We've, we've been like, you know, tied together at the hip for the last, well 
year and a half for sure, and even before that during COVID. So, so I think she was happy to, to you know, isn't there a moose calling you, or don't you have an appearance to do? So she was happy to have a couple hours. And, I, and our daughter, Eva's there anyway, so Great. looking after whatever Louise needs right now. You've touched on a couple points during the podcast, and it's, you know, family relations. I keep hearing over and over again, you know, Patrick and I have the same thing, supportive wives, kids, you know, your success on your TV show, Hal and Lynn and Eva were kind of more popular at times than you were, some of those episodes, right? Miles more popular. That's what put our show on the map with my father and father-in-law, Hal and Lynn. And, and then when Evie, once they got a little bit too old, then Evie came on board. And yeah, I was like a secondary, I was like Ed McMahon. Do you remember him? No, nobody remembers him. <laughs> from Ed WWF? Mc... No, oh. not from that. <laughs> but, but without them, hunting doesn't really have uh-huh. carry as much weight right not as much significance when you're taking your kid or your wife or your spouse or your father that's I, I get asked all the time what what you know if i could do one more hunt if there's one hunt that's most memorable it's nothing to do with world's records or the biggest this or biggest that it's it's always any hunt with family and i, I don't you know my daughter eva our son brandlin uh, my father hal len you know louise's been on hunt she's a she's a non-hunter will never hunt but she's been there to enjoy the outdoors. Hunting is only a tiny, tiny bit about killing something. It's everything else. And family is such a big part of that humor, adventure, culture. I mean, th- these are, that's what makes up hunting, the elements. And, and our hunting show uh, was, hunting adventures was, that was what it was about. As if I could find a show that had those elements, if we had a show that had in equal amounts, that was a good show. So we always, you know, family is, is so important. It, it, it is. It's what we're about, community. And I, I think we get villainized or vilified and marginalized in the popular press, you know, that we're, we're louts that spit on the floor and have no higher sensibilities. But just the opposite is true. It, it's been a real disservice to hunters and hunting over the last 30, 40, 50 years. And to be fair, you know, the guys back then were, you know, a little macho, Ruark and those guys, you know, I mean, even the, I kind of go, ooh, you know, that's misogynistic. And, and, and so maybe we deserved that pendulum to swing a little bit away from us. But, but uh, we're slowly but surely getting the message out. You can't. The truth is the truth. Look who's sitting around this table. You know, everybody here understands the wildlife, understands how important it is, conservation. Everybody here is family and, and knows the value of family. That's what these countries, Canada, United States, that's what we're founded on is, you know, that honor and ethics and, and morality. So, so it's hunting is far more than just about a kill. Well, uh, I just harvested my first animal, what, six months ago? I had yeah. tried with a trad bow before, Jim. I have no luck. I was a terrible <laughs> trad bow uh, hunter. Will I ever forget that moment 40 years from now? No, no. I, I, I can actually put myself right back in the exact spot uh, of when I got my first white-tailed deer, I was 14 years old. I mean, I was thinking about it this morning. Cool. Yeah, you'll never, ever lose that. Or when one of your children gets their first animal, that, and and to be there and share that, you know, and, and anybody, if you've taken them out that is a non-hunter that learning how to hunt and you're there with them, that, that it's such a spiritual experience. Ours was, it was all, it was me and a girlfriend of mine uh, on a blood moon, the hunter's moon. So the blood moon, of course, kind of embodies the female. It was crazy, crazy uh, how it all came together and out came this doe. So I not only harvested a female, uh, was with a female on the blood moon. So yeah, I'm like, I, I'm pretty sure I'll never forget that. But I'm like, if I hunt a lot, will I ever forget it? Not never. That's with you forever. Yeah, I was thinking about, you know, being a young kid growing up here in Wyoming and hunting and how hunting was 
part of my heritage as well. And you talked about waiting for your dad to come back with that moose leg sticking out. I'll never forget it. I would sit on the porch and wait for my dad to come back from his elk hunts, his moose hunts for the same thing. It's like, I was so excited to see what he would harvest, but also about the meat and, you know, getting to enjoy that. But the story was really important, but this has been under attack. Like, you know, in, in the United States and in Canada, you know, as far as like firearm regulations that certainly affect hunting. And I've heard you speak on this a little bit, but would you kind of expound on what's going on in Canada right now with legislation and just kind of the battle kind of back and forth about, you know, our heritage and, and what we're trying to protect as, as hunters? Yeah, you know, I, I just spoke in front of our House of Commons, the, the Committee on Public Safety and National Security. So so it's, it would be the same thing as speaking in front of your congressman. We, we have to always remember that the other, there was one hour we had, and, and the first two speakers, one was a lady that was involved with a, a, a mass murder at a, at a university. There were, uh, I think, 14 women were killed, and this woman was there, and and it was 30 years ago, and she's still fighting to to ban, you know, semi-automatic firearms. And and for her, that that's a, you know, I mean, you you can't imagine it's it, because the sorrow, you know, imagination doesn't live live at the depths where that kind of sorrow exists. So so we have to also be a little bit compassionate on this and understand that the people that are fighting for the banning of firearms have, you know, at least in Canada. Um, you know, they, they're, they're truly all in on that. Um, you know, the other person had been in, there was another mass murder, six people at a, at a, at a mosque and, and he survived it. And because the guy's semi-automatic, whatever you jammed. And, and so they spoke ahead of me. Now I had to come on saying, you know, speaking for pro firearms because as a hunter and you know, what I said was, you know, the taking away of life is inexcusable, you know, unacceptable. There, there, no matter how you just, it's not, it's, it's repellent. And, and, but the taking away of life is also bad. And that's what they have to understand is that when they attack the, the firearms, they're attacking hunters, they're attacking you know, sports shooters, uh, people that are collectors, and, and they're not the problem. And that, this is what I kept, they kept referring to my firearms. And, and it, it's a thinly veiled attack on hunting. I mean, one of the Congress ladies, which isn't, she's a uh, MP, member of parliament for Canada. She tried to slip in a little verbiage there saying, you know, you know, it's all about cutting heads off and sticking them on you, something to that effect. And, and I told her, listen, hunting is, you know, they, they allowed me to speak, which was nice of the chairman um, to answer. She said, I, that wasn't a question. You know, he shouldn't be able to answer it. You know, but the, the chair of the committee said, no, he, sh- he should be able to counter that. And I, I explained, she was saying that guns that we use in Africa are not the same as here and we just want to kill heads or cut heads off. So by her statement, she's attacking hunters. And, and so, you know, don't try and couch this as you're just trying to get rid of this firearm that killed these many people, and which is a terrible, terrible tragedy. You know, you are actually coming after hunters, and that's what you don't like. And and you're you're hiding behind this veil, which is, to me, it was so sad to see these people that have been involved in these mass murders speaking from the heart, and then you see a politician twisting it to her advantage to try and make it be about you know hunting. It's not; those people don't have a problem with hunting. Or hunters, and you know we don't have weapons; we have firearms that we use. You know, and, and I, I actually 
well, I spoke, I define weapon. You know, it, it, there's nothing in there that is what I own. You know, a weapon has to be used for the purpose of hurting somebody or something and it, it, not, not for hunting specifically. And, and we have to just be aware and, and a little bit understanding. And I think it'll be, at least in Canada, you know, you guys down here have a second amendment. We don't have that in Canada. With a stroke of a pen, mm-hmm. our prime minister, Justin Trudeau, can basically take away our firearms. What would that do to outfitting? Well, <laughs> for you in, in the remote communities, and this is what I explained to them: you guys are are causing trouble with our indigenous cultures up in the north in Canada, the Inuit, uh, you know, everywhere, First Nations across Canada. A lot of those remote communities, you know, the meat comes from American hunters coming up, and if they're not coming up, what do you think would happen? You know, th- those people would. The elders are the ones who we provide the meat for. Thank goodness for the Americans coming up to Canada and hunting moose. The, a, the money goes into Canada and into the communities up there. We're hiring local. We're doing, you know, bringing meat by the, literally by the ton to the elders who can't hunt anymore, the First Nation elders. Uh, you know, up in the north, the Inuit, I mean, they have good intentions, some of them. You know, other ones like this, this MP, member of parliament, that tried to twist it to make hunting and hunters look terrible uh, she's a, she's anti-hunting you know anti uh, probably animal rights for all I know so so that's not the same but but they they have to understand what their consequences that's unintended consequences of their you know maybe good intentions for some of them so and again I know there'll be pro firearms down here that'll just go you know be going livid right now you cannot give an cross you know draw a line in the sand fair enough I get it because the instant you do, allow them to cross that line in the sand, they, they come after the next thing and the next mm-hmm. thing, and it just never ends. So why not just draw a line in the sand and let's fight right here? You know, and I, I'm talking figuratively fighting, not, not literally fighting. So, so yeah, up in Canada, it, it, we're in a bad way right now with our, our prime minister, but we've got a new fellow, a new kid on the block, uh, Paul Polyov, who leads the Conservative Party, and, and he is common sense. He, he's the, one of the few politicians I've ever met that that actually um, you know I like him I mean he's 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 a good guy and and I like I say one of the few there are some so I'm not painting all politicians <laughs> in fact I've even considered getting into politics you should I would love to see I was gonna say that is I vote for Jim here unanimous yeah. Um, yeah, that's you know I I was asked twice to to run for our conservative party up in Canada federally uh, one was back 35 years ago, probably, and, and I would have won. It was it was a landslide in those days, but but I it wasn't the life I wanted to live. And I had you know Louise, and I know you're going to get attacked on the family side. Uh, and Louise is just too pure a person to, you know, me. What are you going to do? Send me home? I mean, come on. But Louise is too gentle and too kind, and 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 to run her through that mill wouldn't be right. Um, so I decided against it back then, and then a few years ago. But I had to write my novel. So I told him that. I said, look, I have to write another. It's actually a two-book deal, so I have to write a second one. Ooh, that's yeah, a for, teaser. Yeah, for, Spoiler, yeah. we got an extra book. Oh, yeah, and the second one, once I've got them on the first one, then oh boy, second one, we're going to town. I but, can't uh, wait. But, uh, but I have to get that done, and then, then uh, you know, maybe I'll step into politics. Yeah. I, I wouldn't just, That's the one thing I have left, actually, on my bucket list. We could get you into consulting without having to be directly involved. I think that if I had 
was in a position where I could vote on things and I could do a lot more than just consulting. I, cons- I, I, it's not the money. I don't even want their stupid money. I, I don't want the pension. You know, like I say, we're donating the museum and right. giving the, we're donating it all because what, you know, like I say, what are you going to do? Take it home with you in the grave? I mean, you can't. There's no trailers behind hearses. No, exactly right. And and that's, that's why we're, you know, if, if depending on what happens in our lives, um, you know, our family life, I, I just may take that route and, and like I say, you're not going to shame me and you're not going to cancel me and you're not going to send me home. I'm just going to tell the truth if I do get into politics. I'll be voting for you from afar because we can't <laughs> vote, but I'll send it to my, my Canadian friends for sure. All right, Muley Fanatic Foundation, we've got Radcast Outdoors podcast. I'm Shireen Herrera and, of course, the legendary Jim Shockey. Just a quick follow-up question and kind of to caveat it to end our last question. You can look at the FBI data on horrible crimes in this country of murder. One of the biggest ones is drunk driving, right? That is, that's 100% curable tomorrow. And you look all the way down the very bottom of the list of semi-automatic weapons, right? And so it's not about saving lives. It's, it's a very thin-veiled attack on who we are. To move on to that next premise, I'm seeing a lot of the same thing being done in predator control management, right? Here in Wyoming, we can manage our wolves. Colorado's going to, next state south of us, bring the wolves in, and they've imported them as a, they're not going to be able to hunt them, and it's going to decimate the elk herd, which is... In, in the states here, they have the majority of, they, they, they carry the most elk. And how can we, I mean, Oregon is another example. In 96, they banned hound hunting for lions, and their ungulate populations have completely been decimated. So how do we counter this attack in the predator management arena? That's a tough one. I mean, number one, I think up in Canada, we charge you guys $40 million for those first 40 wolves that you guys <laughs> let go down here. They're not even, not even American wolves. They're so, not. so, so you're, you know, I, I, you're, you know, I got to be careful here because we made a lot of money off you guys and that again, you know, good intentions, but with unintended consequences. I mean, now you got wolves everywhere. I mean, and, and again, grizzly bears, you protect them. Um, Colorado, you know, I, I'd say call us up in Canada. We'll sell you a bunch more wolves down there. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> you know, it's very uh, controversial too when we talk about uh, wolves, uh, anyways, and especially in this area too. And I've been reading that Rise of Wolf Eight, which is the guy who reintroduced wolves into Yellowstone National Park, and uh, that's fascinating. So if anybody's listening that you know doesn't really know uh, a take on, on wolves, that's one one side book that you should read, and then you should definitely take another side book. But very controversial when you bring up the the. Yeah, and, and it's fair enough. I mean, an, an icon of the wilderness is, is wolf, grizzly bear. I mean, you know, to hear a wolf howling, truly, it's one of the most amazing experiences. So so I get that. I can understand why you'd want wolves. But I, I think it's important for everybody to remember that there is no wildlife populations in this world left, not one. I don't care what it is, whales, you name it, that that isn't managed by human beings. And so if you're going to do this, you have to manage it with science. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, if, if you swing too way on one side, you know, too far, I mean, that's not management. That, and they'll say, well, nature is boom and bust. Well, no, nature never had logging roads built so that the wolves can run and become uber predators. We have that in BC. They, they just run a logging road for 20 miles till they hit a deer track or elk track or caribou track. Then they run off the on that track, kill it, come back on the road and run again. I mean, that's nature. We've modified nature. There's 8 
billion of us on this planet right now. And, and to think that we, we can just let nature do its thing anymore, and it will eventually. Nature's, the big picture is nature will take care of overpopulations of everything. You're right. And there's 8 billion of us, and we might want to keep that in mind when we, when we look at all these, you know, and again, we, we look at tiny little flashes, windowpane views, not, not the big picture. We have to manage wildlife nowadays, and, and we have to do it through science. Up in Canada, our, our premier, and I, I, it's almost a quote, I, I probably, I should say I'm paraphrasing him, but he said that they ban grizzly bear hunting because it's not socially acceptable, well, you know that if you manage by socially acceptable, we, we certainly wouldn't have ugly beards like yours and you know, oh man, it'd be tough. Scraggly hair like this, and we wouldn't be able to wear these it. kind of hats. I mean, socially acceptable is such a relative thing, and you know there is no right or wrong. And when you're talking socially acceptable, there's just cultural perspective, and and that's what we're using to to manage wildlife. I mean, it's absurd. It's it's irresponsible at the very least. Uh, and, and, you know, to hear that and, you know, again, with the wolves, the grizzly bears down here, I mean, it's, and, and there's many, many stories that this person got killed, this person got mauled, this person got chewed on, the ungulate populations are dropping, where's all the caribou gone, where's all the deer, where's all the elk? Well, yeah, because we're managing from social perceptions as opposed to to science. So, so yeah, wolves are an icon, I get it, but they also need to be managed in today's world. There's a lot that goes in with uh, conservation, Jim. There's so much we can all talk about. The Muley Fanatic Foundation has been obviously protecting mule deer and doing a, a darn good job of it. They've 11 years, Jim, they've grown from starting here in Wyoming to spreading out. They even have chapters now in West Virginia that are a part of this. Uh, guys, just talk a little bit about uh, the Muley Fanatic Foundation and how you guys have done with conservation. We've done good. You know, to date, I think I sent you some notes the other day, we've put almost $3 million to good use in Wyoming. And a lot of our, a lot of what we do is scientific. We work with the university a lot. We're doing a lot of studies, trying to learn what's driving this decline in our mule deer population. I don't think anybody knows in the West. We're trying to find out. We're trying to be truthful about it. And we're very honest about what's going on. We've done great things. It's a great organization. I, I don't think you can find a, a better conservation organization around than than the Muley Fanatics. And put on great events too. Great food, great fun, all kinds of cool stuff too. So it's, yeah. Entertainment, yeah. <laughs> Jim, it's just great to have you here uh, again. Like I said earlier, I know we've all been really excited about having you on the podcast. I just have one thing, one thing that's just been bugging me so much, so much. Uh oh. <sighs> I just don't like, You're the like way this is going I mean, already. if there, uh, everything I mean, he just adores his wife. He adores his daughter. He's a man of all men. He's spiritual. He's a uh, very middle of the road too when it comes to talking. But there's just one thing: Do you fly fish? <laughs> I knew this was coming. She, you know. Uh, the fly fishermen are going to go crazy, but uh, you, you said I was a manly man. Doesn't that answer your question about fly fishing? <laughs> just just, just oh, saying, oh, and yeah, you can tell me that it's just like hunting. and you, you know. It is. It's very uh -huh, primitive. Yeah. If you like bow hunting, if you like traditional archery, you should love fly fishing. You know, my, my son, with nature. Our, our son-in-law, Tim Brent, he, he was a professional hockey player, and he's a, a fanatic fisherman. And he just rolls his eyeballs at me when it comes to fishing because I, 
I, you know, I, I'm like my father. Fish to me are meat. So, so if I go out, I'm going to catch prawns and crabs and bottom oh. fish. And uh, or when I'm out east, you know, with Tim, he he wants to catch bass and let them go. And I, I, that's wonderful, great, but not me. I want to catch a catfish or a gar, and I want to eat it. Okay. You know, it's like harvesting the fish. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I love eating fish. I'm sorry, and I hate buying fish. So, so I if I go fishing, it, you know, I'm I'm trying to get my limit of soul, mm-hmm. eight soul, and then I we get to go home and eat them. We get my one cod and one rockfish a day and, and go eat them. Well, for food and harvesting, that's a great thing. But I feel like now that you're slowing down a bit in life, you could take up fly fishing. Yeah, so but now my, you're gonna my, have I have shoulder rotator cuffs, arthritis. Spay fishing. We'll spay. Like, you can spay cast. You don't even have to move. You're just in this little box. I'm gonna try to push it on him as hard as I can. I'm sorry. Know, I, I had to take it real hard. <laughs> give, give me a bobber and a worm, and I'll be, I'll be happy. So, what is your favorite game meal to prepare? Pro, go procure and prepare. Well, you know, when we get a moose up there in the Yukon, and, and you can ask my guides, you know, I don't eat the backstraps and the tenderloins right off the bat. No way. For me, it, uh, I want the heart, the liver, the uh, cull fat, uh, you know, the, the tongue, the nose, even the even the uh, diaphragm, diaphragma, we call it. You know, because I, I think those are the, the best cuts on the, on the moose. And then... The ribs, you know, I'll, I'll cook ribs. I have my own special recipe for ribs, wow. and and long before I'll ever eat the tenderloin. To me, the tenderloin is is wonderful. You know, when you have guests over, because you know it's not chewy and it, everybody loves it. Uh, no fat, but I, you know, I I have eaten wild game my whole life. So those fat ribs on a on a late August, early September moose pre rut is pretty nice. You know, you you barbecue those up. Oh my mm. goodness! So th- that's my my favorite is is the those delicacies inside the animal. And then after that, and I, I know there's a whole bunch of guys, oh, yeah, that stuff's not meant for you. It's dog food. No, it's not. It's, it's fresh to me. heart is, is a delicacy. It, oh, for it's sure. fabulous. Uh, what is the ultimate sandwich and how do you prepare it? Cause I've, cause I've followed along. There's, yeah, there's we, some shenanigans with the, the sandwiches. The, you know, a sandwich is a work of art when it's done properly. And, and you know, my dad, it was a big fat chunk of dry cheese, cheddar usually, two big pieces of bread, and that was a sandwich. Disgusting. And, and you know, for me, you need that, sure, the bread, great, and the big chunk of cheese, but then you also need relish and mayo and ketchup on it. Then you have to add several different types of meats, a big slice of onion, some jalapenos, and then you start adding the jam and the peanut butter after that. And that's when it starts to get to be a sandwich. <laughs> you, you, the the world's best sandwich is a competition we have everywhere I go around the world. Because, you know, you, I don't eat breakfast as ever, but I'll, I'll use whatever comes for breakfast to make a sandwich that I'll eat about 10 o'clock in the morning. And, and uh, yeah, there's been some some wild concoctions for the sandwiches <laughs> over the years. It, it's all, it's like art. You have, you know, if you just look at one type of art or music, listen to one type of music, you don't really know what you like or don't like if you don't go out to the outer edges and try what's out there too. Modern art, spattered paint on a wall. You got to look at that to know how stupid that is to really appreciate what you like in art. You know, and some of the really studied art is not as good as, you know, mid-century modern. I love it. It's tribal almost. So, so you got to, same with sandwiches. You got to try, you know, those cheese <laughs> sandwiches it. and, and you, you got to try those. Yeah, Expand those. your horizons from Jim Shockey. I've, yeah, I've on met sandwich way too baking, many people yeah. here that, in the That's West. why I've never done a, a recipe book because people would just go, <laughs> yeah, I am not, not, not going to do that. Well, I can respect that because me and Rowdy, we're good hunting buddies and we do youth hunts and we make sandwiches every day for guys. And everybody that hunts with us say we make the best sandwiches. So I appreciate that. <laughs> What is one hunting adventure that you might have thought it was your last? 
like you might not come home. When when you're a professional, I guess it's it's like those guys that fought in the Battle of Britain and then it go off to war. It's always going to happen to somebody else. Yeah. Never to yourself because you have enough faith and confidence in your own abilities. You know, but but it's one of the reasons I don't do the international hunting anymore because I'm 65. You know, I can't run as fast, I can't see as well, I can't hear as well, definitely can't hear as well. You know, it can't feel, it can't taste as well. You know, so so you know, I, I'm. If I had to face some of the situations I've had over the years, now at my age, I may not actually come out of the other end. You know, I'll probably have bear spit on me or cougar spit, you know, or, or buffalo spit. You know, who knows? And 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 so, always in the past, there was never one that I thought I wasn't going to come out of. Um, probably the people situations were worse than the animal situations. Actually, yeah. I was going to tell a story tonight. Um, uh, if I, if there's time, I think I only get half an hour, but you know, I was, I was in, uh, Ethiopia on the smuggling lines between Sudan and Somalia. And it was the, um, mercy tribal people. And they, these guys were bad actors. I mean, they all had AK 47s and a rough looking bunch. There was about six of them, I think five or six. And, and, uh, we bumped into them in the bush. Now, you know, I had my gun muzzleloader and they had, you know, their AK-47s, and the PH was there, and they walked up to me, the little leader, and he pulled my sunglasses off my face and put them on his own face and and then turned around to his buddies, you know. So there's the first step in aggression, right? He he He's dominating me. Am, am I a victim? And and so when he turned around, you know, you could see he was just cocky, confident. I just reached, and I popped his Grigri necklace off his neck. And I said, okay, and I pointed at the sunglasses he's wearing, and, you know, this is my Grigri. We're going to do a trade here. And, and he, he just started for a second, you know, and that, because he wasn't expecting that. He was expecting me to cower and, oh, yes, what else, what's, what's next, you know, and eventually everything you have is what's next, including your life. Life is very little value over there. And, but because I stood up to him and, and actually, okay, what I did was I matched his aggression and I said, okay, now it's your move again. And, and, but your next move better be all in because I'm all in on my next move. Someone's going to get killed. Someone's going to get hurt really badly, but we don't know which one of us it's going to be. So you, if you're willing to try that, hey, I'm all in. Let's go for it. Let's let's just find out. And so you don't, you know, there was never fear in that because it, you 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 know to show fear is a wasted emotion. You're you're you have to react and you have to react properly and you have to know that that's a predator. Well, guess what? I'm also a predator. And and yeah, we might be different predators, but but. Boy, oh boy, this is going to be fun to find out who's top of the heap here, and and I mean that's literally what I was thinking when I was going into this. Okay, can't you're, play the victim. Yeah, no. If you if you're you know you're a victim, these guys will just eat you, and and that's you, you become you become prey. So so those kind of situations I've been in many times over the years. He he, by the way, is you know he was a little jerk anyway, and and uh, his buddies were older, and and they. Uh, one of them started to giggle, you know, snir- smirk because he he started, you know, and that showed he it was fear, like, well, mm-hmm. what's this? And then the other one started laughing, and the next thing you know, he t- gave me back my sunglasses, and and we were buddies. I actually have a picture of us all together, <laughs> you know. So so you know, and, and and what I was telling him, I'm just not worth it. I'm a hard target, and you know, go find a, a tourist somewhere you you want to roll, go do that, which there wasn't any in the area. We, technically, we were the tourists, but. Um, so I've had a lot of those kind of close calls, um, but I never ever felt that it was going to be my last one. Now, 
I, you know, I just don't want to put myself in those positions. That's, right. that's for you younger generations to, <laughs> that's for you to see how well you do when you're faced with that. But, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm good. You know, I've got the t-shirt. I'm, I, I'm good now. <laughs> G- give me my bobber and my, my, my worm and I'm happy. Oh, get out of here. We're going to get you a fly <laughs> rod. Well, cause you brought up the fly fishing. I, well, it's just the one, I just feel like there's just so much potential there <laughs> you know, for every, you. Every fly fisher person out there right now is going, oh, I hate that guy. But <laughs> That, you know, all you fly fisher people, you know, I'm actually not worried about you, so don't go go ahead. See, have at here it. he is. He's separating us fly fisher people. Something he doesn't he's not scared. Doesn't want to do it in the world, me. and okay. you know, we don't want to separate. We all want to be together, right? So we'll get you a fly rod, spay casting. You don't have to use your shoulder. That's right. You'll and, be and, hooked. But it's important to remember we're all on the same team, yep. and that's yeah, yeah. that's, that's a sign of respect. Yep. It, I was telling somebody earlier, if I stop, I, Zumbo, Jim Zumbo is going to be here tonight. Apparently, this afternoon, and and I fully intend to take pot shots at him when I'm on stage. <laughs> Please. And and it's because it's what we do, the confidence and and the that camaraderie, that's how we show it. If if they if everybody stopped making fun of me, I'd go, oh, you know, what's wrong with me? I'm I'm probably should just roll over and die. So the fly fisherman, I, I make fun <laughs> of the fly fisher people. Yes, I be, know. Because it's it's actually a sign a sign of the way we show respect in our in our outdoor field to table world. Well, well not Pat- field to table for fly fisher people. Because they just throw everything back. Yeah, well, understand. we're keeping it for you to harvest. How does that sound? <laughs> Patrick said already on our podcast that uh, fly fishing was vastly superior. At times. Mostly. <laughs> not, no, not mostly. At times. <laughs> well, Jordan Peterson talks a little bit about this when he was a young man. He's I follow him. I really like Jordan. Brilliant, brilliant man. He talks about a kid named Lunchbox when he was at the railroads, right? He, he His mom packed his lunchbox every day, and all the like, old, you know, crusty guys on the crew would sit there and they nicknamed him Lunchbox because he's got his little toy lunchbox his mom packs him. And everybody else goes, no, you bring your lunch in a paper sack, and he's just be a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. That kid couldn't take the the razzing, the teasing, and he quit, right? And though Jordan talks about it. The older guys were just testing. Yeah. Can this guy be one of the crew? Yeah, is, is he one of us? Is he deserving? And once they realize he's not, that's the beauty of our world. We stop making fun of the person because they can't take it. So we kind of don't accept you anyway, yeah. you know, which is, which is sad for Lunchbox because I don't know where he ended up. He ended up somewhere else. Yeah, I love exactly. that name though. <laughs> with, 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 with other Lunchboxers. And that's, you know, that's fair enough. Everybody's got their little tribe and our tribe, you got to stand up and take it because, and you got to be able to dish it right back out. Although so far a fly, fisher person is fly fisher person <laughs> yeah. never really dished it back out at me, I, which makes me wonder about the whole crew. But <laughs> <laughs> So you mentioned Jim Zumbo. And I know he admires you a lot, but I want you to talk just for a minute about the Weatherby Award and your relationship with Jim, because he admires you a whole bunch. Yeah, Zumbo, I mean, he was my hero. He, he was the man back in the day, the hunting editor of Outdoor Life magazine. I mean, I, I read him when I was a kid. He, he was, what was he? Uh, that was like 100 years ago or what? years I, old at that time. Uh, that was 100 <laughs> years for you? Yeah. I don't know how old. Yeah, I, that how was 60 you? years ago. So he's got to be 130 years old. Oh, I meant now. for you. <laughs> yeah, that was a long time ago for me too. I shouldn't be throwing too many stones. But uh, yeah, I mean, I first met Jimbo back in uh, Missouri on a hunt. Tony Knight set it up and I walked in the room and there was Jim Zumbo sitting. I mean, I knew I'd made it. You know, there's my hero. And I told him right then, the first words I was saying, Jim Zumbo, you're my hero. And I held my hand out to shake his hand, and uh, and I meant it. Judd Cooney was also my hero in those days. Larry Wyshew, not so much, but uh, I pretended to be. He was my hero too. But but yeah, Zumbo is uh, 
Yeah, he's he's an amazing, amazing guy, and and we go back forever. We when I was awarded the Weatherby Award, which in, kind of in our hunting world is is like the pinnacle achievement. You you know the criteria to win it. You're not going to win it at forty or even fifty. It's not going to happen. Um, you got to spend a lifetime hunting around the world, and and I think it was Donald Trump Jr. was there. He, he was speaking and and was going to present it, but I also asked if I could have Jim Zumbo and Larry Weishman on stage with me. And that, that was to show respect, you know, and, and, and there are times the kidding is all wonderful and the jamming each other and, you know, dishing it out and taking it is all part of what we do. But, but ultimately it comes down to respect and, and, uh, that I couldn't think of a better way to pay a higher respect to, to Jim Zumbo and Larry Weishman than to have them on that stage because they were there at the start of my career and and to have them there presenting was um, that was such a huge honor for me. So I, I know Jim Zumbo and Larry probably thought it was their honor. No, it was it was one hundred percent my honor. It was self serving. Well, hopefully someday you can be back on that stage presenting the next person, and I'm sure know, you will be yeah. that guy for somebody else. Yeah, I mean we'll we'll see that that's or gal. Yeah, yeah. well there's there's been a, there's been two ladies actually have won the Weatherby Award. Um, Rini Schneider, one of them, she's an amazing, amazing hunter, um, world class all over the world been everywhere, done everything. And, and she's a woman doing that. You know, I'm a guy, but for a woman to do it, that that's, you know, I tip my hat because it's not everywhere in the world. It, it's, uh, you know, a equality and, mm. and that there's a lot of parts of the world that are still pretty behind the times in that regard. So for Rini to do that, Amazing. Barbara Sackman also won it, and same thing. Uh, now, she went with her husband most times. Rini did it on her own. Um, total respect for her. But that's true, like what you talked about. I mean, some of these areas um, that you've visited 30 years ago, really females being there alone and hunting was just completely taboo. Um, and like you said, that really hasn't changed in some areas. No, culturally, you know, they're, they're just they're, they're whatever – Whatever drives them culturally, that's their perspective on. And, and you know, it's not for me to judge. You know, do I think it's right or wrong personally? You know, that's. I think we all know where we stand on that. Right. But but, uh, you know, for a lady to go into those places and and you're in a camp, you know, there's no nice bathrooms. It's not a spa up on those mountains in whatever part of the world you're in. And and uh, with a bunch of guys, you know, because there's never any ladies there up in those really remote camps in those parts of the world. So. Yeah, like I say, it, it's incredible. What she did is, and what they did, uh, is is just miles beyond what I accomplished. Did you hunt in Azerbaijan? Yes. Uh, goat or sheep? No, it was the Dagestan tur. Oh, the tur, yeah. yeah. There, uh, I knew somebody that went on a hunt there, and I kind of helped uh, in the behind the scenes, and they were talking about the guides that would go just with no shoes and just be like, their feet were like an actual animal hoof over there in Azerbaijan. Is that true? Oh yeah, yeah. They, they, these guys are tough around the world. They, I, I tell a, uh, I'll tell you a quick story about Russia, to give you an idea of what the Russian, you know, hunt, hunters are like. Um, I was in the Caucasus, not too far from Azerbaijan. I, I think it was going after the Western Tour or, or Central Tour. I'm not sure, but but when I went, in, no, no, it was actually for for. Um, Mid-Eastern brown bear. So it was a spring hunt. Uh, still tons of snow on the ground. It was about a 36-hour Russian jeep ride to get to this place up on the Caucasian mountains, which are steep and nasty, uh, all forested. And we, we finally got to the camp, and it was a two-story log building. I mean, it was a beautiful cabin. Um, 
and I, I walked in the door and it was cold out, you know, three feet of snow outside. But again, it's all timbered around there. And I walk in there, there was a table with about 10 of these Russian guys at the table and they all had their hats on and they're, you know, they were all huddled up in their winter clothes and they're, they're eating their soup and the cook was all dressed up and, you know, he was cooking on a propane cook stove. And I, and I walked in and, and, you know, I was cold cause I just walked from the truck or the car, or the Russian Jeep. And, and I said to the, uh, I said to the translator, I said, ask them why they don't have a wood stove in here. Like you've got firewood everywhere. And, and, uh, so we translated and, and all 10 of those guys and the cook looked at me like I was the stupidest person in the world. And I, you know, you could see it just like, how stupid is this guy from North America? And they answered and I trans, he, I said, what did he What did they say? He said, why would we put a wood stove in here? It's only cold for five months of the year. That's how they think. They don't, it's comfort. They're tough too. It's tough. Ooh. Yeah, they're, they're, they don't care. You know, the same thing for, for the hiking boots. You know, they, they're wearing just the cheapest little running shoes and it, there's snow on the ground. And I, same thing, I asked them why. So, well, because I only guide for two months of the year. Why would I spend money on hiking boots? You know, it's just expensive. Wow. And why would you do that? So yeah, they're tough over there. Like, and comforts, you know, we, we've sort of equated comfort with survival. And, and in fact, discomfort should be embraced. They do it over there. We, we're a little bit spoiled over here, I got to say. And, you know, as I get older, I'm even more spoily, but. Uh, oh, no, no way. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> you and that bobber and that gear rod, you know, making fishing easy. Hey, excuse me, I'm in a boutique hotel here. Ooh. Lander, a boutique There's only hotel. one boutique hotel. I, know, I, I, could, I didn't think 30 years ago when I was in Wyoming, I, I didn't think I'd ever see the day that there's a boutique hotel. But here I am staying yep. in one. It's it's awesome. I had yeah. my cafe latte this morning. The luxuries of life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and that's why I say around the world, luxuries, they understand that discomfort is, is not going to kill you. It's not a survival just because you feel cold and miserable. You're tougher. Yeah, you, you just tough it out. And, and next five months, it'll be warm again. So, you know. Cowboy wish we up. could promote that more too. You know, we talk about just trying to get people into conservation, but also just living with some of those discomforts too. And just, you know, in the end, it would help everything with the environment, hunting, angling, fly fishing. Um, and <laughs> just can't help yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, this is, I see this almost as a challenge. <laughs> well, I'm hoping that if I do it enough, she, she some, keeps throwing that in. He's going to like, fly fish. Like somehow it's equal with You're big game hunting. Wyoming, it's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can appreciate, you know, as working on horseback, rolling in, laying the horse pads down, throwing a tarp down and going to sleep. And that's, that was camp a lot of times when I was picking up hunters from wall tent camps. Like you're not going in their tent and sleeping on their cot. They get that, right? Yeah. And I was just as comfortable on the horse pads and my bed rolling a tarp, but it really is nice to come home, go to a faucet, the water runs out, go to a bathroom. Yeah. But, but again, it, you, you know, it's, there's a saying, uh, um, Hope is only for those who also despair. You don't really realize how, how well, how good we have it until you've been without it. So, you know, we really do appreciate it as hunters and outdoors people, field-to-table lifestyle livers. We know what it, what it feels like to not have those comforts, modern comforts, and that means we really do appreciate them and we don't take them for granted. It's, it's part of being a hunter. Well, before we wrap up, let's talk a little bit about your book, Call Me Hunter. Pre-order it now, available October 2023, but you're going to want to get it pre-ordered so you have it when you're taking those winter trips to uh, somewhere that you need a a book on the plane or in the airport. Why would an anti-hunter or a non-hunter buy this book? 
the plot, the drama, the suspense? Yeah, it's a thriller. I mean, it's kind of like Da Vinci Code mixed in with a little bit of Girl with a Dragon Tattoo with a touch of Hunger Games thrown in. And and Smila's Sense of Snow, which is, not many people know that book, but it's, you know, so so it's a a good read. That's why they... That's why they picked it up and, and gave me a big, huge, giant advance and, and signed me to a two-book deal. Um, so so it's, it's entertaining, and, and it's, it's a very gentle pro-hunting message in, the, in this first book. You, you, anyone that reads it will get it, but, but I guarantee once, once you get past page 100, you're not going to be able to put it down. Um, I, and I didn't have to make up a whole bunch of stuff in the book. You, you'll actually, there's real, you Google it all. You can Google Everything in that novel, and you'll find that it. Oh, this is true. How well, far back does it, some of it go to? Like when you're ten, or like? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it is. It, it's, I mean, uh, I think it does, right? I mean, it does. your whole I mean, life. I, yeah. Yeah. When I, when I was ten, I couldn't read. The teacher kept telling my parents, "He's he's uh, slow, and and I, they better take me to a psychiatrist," and which they did. Uh, so I remember walking in there, and he gave me an IQ test, and and then walked out to my parents and said, eh, you know, your son's not slow. He just doesn't want to read a book about see Dick run and see Jane climb the hill and, you know, their spot barking or whatever. You know, he wants to read what he wants to read. So they took me to the library and I picked out Tarka the Otter. Um, there was uh, the little little canoe that could, uh, you know, books that I was interested in and, and huh, surprise, I could read. And, and I remember grade five getting detentions because I was reading Hunter by J.A. Hunter. Um, you know, and the teacher, she just hated the idea that I was, you know, I was reading a book that was, you know, a factual nonfiction book in grade five instead of, you know, the whatever swill she was trying to get me to read. So she gave me detentions, which was great because I got to read it got in detention. More. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, so, so, so yeah, th- this novel starts at, at 10 years of age. Now I've embellished it a little bit. I think I made the character in the book a little smarter than I actually was. But, it, but it's almost an autobiography in a lot of ways. Like I say, 80% is fiction or fact. 80% is fact. You can Google it. And the 20% that's fiction is the part that would put me in jail. So it's, it's, uh, it, it's a thriller. And it's fictional. Are there any pictures or any animation? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That'd be for uh, Blake over there. Some more pictures. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no. But some someday, I'll, I'll my journals. I've worked. I've actually got four other books that I've written that are sitting there already copy edited, ready to be produced and and released. I I just wanted this novel to come out first, and and the second sure. novel to come out, and then I'll start putting out all these others. Plus all my journals. I've got I, I, a fellow's going through copy editing my journals. There's over a million words on Africa alone. And he's trying to slog through all that. People don't journal anymore. It's such a lost cause. And I'm so thankful for folks like yourself who have, and I know a couple other, uh, a weather guy, and he's been journaling weather reports for 50 years. And he still to this day journals um, without some of that information. It's I mean, we just, I don't know where we would be. Well, you'd never remember unless you're well, way, I, way smarter than me because yeah. I, I couldn't. I can't remember that, yesterday. No, no, try being my age. You know, say, <laughs> what did we talk about? Oh, the fly fishing people. That's right. Just <laughs> you, a few, yeah, few yeah, minutes ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gone already, gone <laughs> out of gone. my mind. Good. <laughs> so, so yeah, journal, journal helps me go right back to that place. And once you have the journal, it, it, it literally takes the first 10 words and I'm right back in that place. I can remember it all. Yep. It's just, I can't access the files without the journal to, sure. to peek my my memory i just want to say this real quick these two guys over here do some amazing work helping with youth and 
youth with disabilities, getting them out hunting, doing some great work. So I just want to call you guys out, say thank you so much for all that you do, because I know it warms my heart to see, you know, what you guys do every year. And you guys should have some recognition on this about that, because, I mean, you guys are true ambassadors, you know, of the sport at the local level, right? And and really touching people from all over the country. So I just wanted to say thank you to Blake and Rowdy because you guys are awesome. Thank you guys. I yeah, appreciate that. And tonight at our banquet, we'll have some opportunities for some people to make a difference. So. Cool. Yeah, and I second everything you said. That, that It's incredible. I walked in the banquet room last night to see that in a, in a community with 7,500 people, uh, 500 seats in there all set up and all the auction items. Amazing work. And, and you know, the world's run by people who show up and you guys are showing up. Your, your organization, like I say, kudos, tip my hat, total respect. Uh, and, and it gives me hope for the future because you guys are young and you're doing this. Uh, boy, you're, you're passing that, that yeah, knowledge. And <laughs> I think Blake's the youngest. Normally I am, but I think, uh, I think I got you beat on that one. You're younger than me. so It's, it's awesome to see. And, and uh, congratulations on what you've accomplished. Well, we would love uh, to see a hands of man type museum here in America. If you've ever, if you ever think about it, traveling, it's something that I think a lot of people do need to be able to witness in person and be able to uh, watch some of those stories and some of that information and to really bring some of those folks that we're trying to harness together with us, the anti-hunter or the people that don't know about hunting. And so I I look forward to seeing how that expands. I hope that, you know, that somebody can take a leaf out of your book and potentially do that here. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to see you out fly fishing soon. Your next book, I'm going to be uh, looking forward to. How, so, how old, how old are you? Because uh, <laughs> you, you, you know, that's uh, I'm not sure how many more years left, but I, I'll, I'll definitely think about fly fishing next time I'm sitting there with my bobber and my I'm worm. I'm sure you will. I'm sure <laughs> you will. That? So, again, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, and I just want to say, on behalf of Radcast, Muley Fanatics County 10, you get pulled a million directions, and it's tough because I know everywhere you go, everybody's like, "Oh, we want." We want an hour with you. We want two hours with you, whatever. We are very grateful that you're here. Just want to say thank you so much for taking the time for us. Um, it means a lot. Well, I appreciate that. It, it truly is my honor. And, you know, you do what you can, but it's never enough. So, so I'll, I'll continue to do my best as long as I've got a voice. Jim, you took hours with folks uh, last night, and we're slated for an eight-hour run here coming soon. And uh, it'll be nonstop. Everybody will want to see you. So that's just impressive. <laughs> you're 65 years old? You're going to get yeah, right, you know? Thank you. I really appreciate that. <laughs> you know, of all the slings and arrows and barbs today, that, that one hurt the most. Thank you. And love. Respect <laughs> and love. Remember, we're all family here. Again, this has been an edition of the County 10 podcast, as well as a special edition of the Radcast Outdoors podcast. And of course, joined by the wonderful Muley Fanatic Foundation, the 10 Country Chapter. We're in County 10, but the 10 Country Chapter. But everybody, thank you so much for being here. And uh, Jim, we can't wait to get you back here in Wyoming. I'll look forward to it.